0: Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to MAKO's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Natasha Mayhew and Michael Sanderson. Natasha and Michael, how are you today?
1: Damn good. All
0: good. Excellent. Today on the podcast, we're going to take a quick look around town. We'll have an update on the race for speaker. We'll also talk about the role of counties as employers. And then we'll dive into the census. And we'll also talk about how the Supreme Court will play a role in what the census will look like. Michael and Natasha, let's take a quick look around town. Let's talk about the race for speaker. We talked about this last week. Any updates here? What are we hearing around town?
2: Well, um, still does not sound like there's an official announcement that any certain someone, uh, candidate for speaker, has the votes to win.
0: Michael, there was a great article in Maryland Matters uh, – shout out to Maryland Matters, to Josh Kurtz – that some progressive groups are getting weary of this Democratic and Republican coalition that we just talked about
1: last week. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting the way this, this breaks down and I think most observers in town see it. I think more or less the way we covered last week saying, you know, a majority within the majority party may not necessarily carry the day. You got 42 Republicans suggesting they are willing to vote as a block and that changes the mathematics. Um. So that's you know that that itself is an interesting dynamic. So what do you what do you do if you're a stakeholder group, uh, particularly somebody who's got sort of an ideological bent? If you're a public labor union who typically endorses blue candidates or works on behalf of blue candidates, and you may embrace the ideals of the Democratic Party, uh, you may. Be a little concerned about the idea of a strange blue plus red coalition becoming – you know, the sort of leadership vessel for, for this chamber. So, so we've seen, you know, the beginnings, like n- n- no one's coming out and actually putting signs and lawns saying, here's exactly what we believe in. But, but people are testing the waters a little bit by saying, we're not wild about this bipartisan coalition. We'd rather see the party we helped put in office, um, you know, stay at the reins.
0: So, I mean, you say we're not putting yard <laughs> signs out and, and whatnot, but, aren't these groups saying that they're wary of this Democrat and Republican coalition? We talked about that would benefit Derek Davis, presumably. And if you had Democrats all lining up and getting in the line and saying, we're going to support the party, that would seemingly benefit Maggie McIntosh. So by progressive groups coming out and saying this, are they not essentially saying we're endorsing Maggie McIntosh for speaker?
1: I feel like it's kind of close, but not that, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the way you have to – I mean – it might feel a little untoward. I guess you know the Baltimore Sun runs a, runs an editorial and they say, "Wow, we support the candidate from Baltimore." Who, who saw that coming? Right? right. Okay, we, we we get that. But but as far as you know, stakeholders who have ongoing business before the body to weigh in on something that's an internal matter would be a little weird. I've I've not seen that before. Mm-hmm. So so you know you, you you can say we're worried about the dynamics of the body and and to some degree is that kind of code for we prefer we prefer the person who has a coalition that's all blue? I mean right right now right now the way you say it is we hope that the democratic caucus can unify behind the member who has the majority of the democratic caucus.
0: So I mean Natasha recapping from last week the speaker race is still meaningful, it's apparently still undecided. Special session is coming on May 1st, that is official now. Do we still expect vetoes to come after that? So, when would we see potential vetoes from the governor?
2: Um, I think we see that after um, that, probably in January. Probably in January. Yeah, not for the special. Yeah, session. The, yeah. Overrides would be <laughs>
1: overrides would be in in January. Right. So, so if if he actually carries out the vetoes after this special session, unless the legislature came back for some other reason, more likely circumstance, to come back in January and have a conversation about overrides if they're going to do that. Okay.
0: So, Michael, you just got out of a meeting with county HR directors, human resources. I know that you had a great conversation up there about our role as employers. Let's jump into that a little bit. There are some issues that are very specific to counties when we talk about counties as employers.
2: All
1: right. It's – I mean, first of all, Mako nominally our members of the organization are the elected officials the county commissioners the council members and executives who who are you know doing the or the governing body of county governments but we can't function without the input and and sort of collaboration with county professionals. And each of us work with selected groups uh, in, who are in our subject areas and so forth. So yeah,
2: those are our thirteen yeah. affiliate organizations. Right,
1: right. And so they, yeah, they are essential to to what yeah. we do. Yeah, and and I mean at at every level, right? I mean, just doing policy work in Annapolis, all of us. You know, over those weekends, we slug home with a briefcase full of bills to read. There's a lot of emails and phone calls going on, calling up people in the county saying, have you have you read page 11 of this bill? This is on you know Sunday morning. Right? Yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> could you take a look at this? Because I don't really understand what this means, but you do this every day. Can you help me understand it? And like, by the way, a week from Wednesday, we have to sit at a panel and talk about it. Can you help with that? When so you come to town? Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's, it's, I think, you know, let's, let's be fair it's it's a symbiotic relationship that the professionals guide us to do a better job on behalf of counties and then their guidance lets us be more effective in annapolis when we make cogent points about this bill's a problem and here's exactly why we're more credible so
2: because we heard directly from the boots on the ground yeah so that's
1: that's a win-win so our 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 um HR staff uh in, in town today talk about several things, including legislation, and and a roundup of bills affecting counties as employers seemed kind of interesting to me. It's I guess it's really not obvious that this is the sort of thing that Mako would care about or county governments would care about. I mean people think about counties and the functions that are in local government. They pave the roads and they pick up the trash and they hire cops and they fund the schools and all those sorts of things. That's obvious that MAKO and counties would care about that stuff. But we've got, you know, we've got 70,000 or so people across the state of Maryland who are county government employees. So in that respect, we're sort of just like, you know, Black and Decker as a big employer Mm. And things in Annapolis affect us in in that way too.
0: So I mean, potentially, though, there are a lot of employment issues in Annapolis, and if we got involved with every one of those bills, obviously that would be a lot more work. We need a lot bigger staff. So I know, <laughs> Never when, you
2: know the testimony table, <laughs> right?
0: So Mako, we are selective in when we get involved. Let's talk about what kind of bills we get involved in and why we get involved in some bills versus others.
1: Right. I mean, in 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 the grand scheme, I guess the. The, the way that we guide this in the main is we try and focus on areas where local governments are affected differently. And I mean, like the, the Chamber of Commerce is a stakeholder group in, in this state, state house and in everyone across the country, I'm sure. And, and generally represents the employer community, the business community and right. so forth. And, yeah, I don't know the you know the the rank and file bills that affect unemployment insur- insurance or workers comp or labor laws or other things like that. That's the sort of thing where they have the expertise to show up and you know they they sort of cover that ground. I don't think we add much to those debates really. And, so and those types you know, of bills, yeah. I mean,
0: we're along for the ride. Yeah, they along just affect the design, everybody,
1: right. so we're we're the same as everybody. But you know, back to the things counties do, we do obviously have special classes of employees, and some of them fit into. Different, you know, different special niches of employment and and employment law for sure.
2: Yeah, so um, I work with our um, correctional affiliate, and so closely with the wardens and correctional officers for the jails, and um, that's definitely one of those areas where there are unique bills that come in to right, how right. they
1: work. Definitely, like like almost all the public safety type roles, uh, law enforcement itself, but also deputy sheriffs mm-hmm. and the and correctional officers. Officers, uh, our our staff at 911 call centers right. and emergency services staff, uh, you know, sometimes staff and firefighters uh, f- frequently have to work unusual shifts. Even that, folks that yeah. are operating
0: heavy equipment for us, right? Sure, I mean, sure. We have a lot of those employees too.
1: And and uh, candidly, we have a, a fair number of local government employees who. Who are cast in sort of an intrusive role, right? I mean, you go into somebody's house or into their mm. business to do an inspection right. or that, that sort of thing. And that's different. I mean, no one from Walmart comes to your house and walks around and starts looking at stuff. Hope not. Right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> so. So so I anyway in in ways that local governments are unique those are the places that we tend to really carry the flag and say make sure you've addressed this or let's make sure this bill doesn't ruin you know, a, a system that's working well for these public safety employees or these these sort of sensitive classes, right?
0: One of those issues, and we've been engaged with a few interesting bills, but one of those is cannabis. And it affects everyone, cannabis in the workplace, but it affects our employees differently. And you talked about sensitive employees and people who are going into people's houses and people operating heavy equipment. Right. This is an interesting issue overall, but I think it's very true that it does affect we have special classes of employees right. that need to be treated differently here.
1: Right. So, so, So now that Maryland has medical use, marijuana, legal in the state under state law, you've opened the door to saying, well, what about an employer who has a general policy of drug testing? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we... Is is that is that something you need to rethink? And basically, does the state legislature want to weigh in and say you shouldn't have a policy that rules out this behavior because it's legal in this state for our purposes? So Walmart or Black and Decker or Calvert County maybe shouldn't have a policy that says if you test positive for cannabis use, you're out of your job.
0: And we've seen different states deal with that differently. These issues are working their way through the courts. But here in
1: Maryland – And the courts are all over the map. Yes. I mean it's like depending on what circuit in federal court you're in, they're getting different results. Different state laws are yielding different results. So this is unresolved in in the various states that have have, uh, either decriminalized or legalized adult use marijuana or cannabis.
0: And and I guess the biggest issue – one of the biggest issues here, Natasha, is – the fact that you can't test necessarily for whether or not someone has just ingested cannabis or whether or not they did it a few weeks or a few days ago. Right. That, that's one of the big, right.
2: Problems. Right. It's not like um, alcohol where on the spot, you know, you, you, um, blow into uh, the breathalyzer. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, this is something where it's, it, lingers in your blood system. Right. And so you don't know whether that was today, yesterday, or the day before. Um, but I think it's generally a 72 or so hour window yeah. that it can um, stay on you.
1: So, so so far, the state legislature hasn't decided to act on any of these bills. But I mean, this year, I think we we're up to three or four different bills that had variations on this theme. And uh, I think it's at least possible that in the next few years they may settle on some standard, and, and maybe it becomes more urgent in the event that Maryland joins the list of states that have have legalized adult use rather than just medical use. And if you know, right now it's a matter of if you have an employee who has the card, and that means they've got a, a recommendation from a from a physician that this is a treatment. Yeah, you know, that's that's one classification. If this turns into just a commodity that people use, and you know what you do on your own time really isn't your employer's business, it becomes, I think, trickier to try and sort out. But we do have those employees in special classes that I think counties, I, I think, we're in the right to be concerned, uh, you know, about them. And you know, candidly, their personal conduct is part of the job.
0: Absolutely, and let's not forget what complicates this even further is that federally. Cannabis use is still illegal, regardless of whether it's for medical use or just adult use. So that complicates us even further. But certainly, Natasha, folks working in public safety, they should be treated as a different class when it comes to doing their jobs and and working in those environments.
2: Yeah, it it does um, bring up a lot of interesting issues when you talk about uh, the public safety workers and um, even the difficulties, um, whether you're working in jail or as an officer having – medical and recreational
1: uh, cannabis there.
0: Okay. Right. So another another tricky issue, ban the box, quote unquote, ban the box and remind us what the box right. is. Yeah. Michael.
1: We talked about this you know, as sort of a session wrap up, but this year a bill passed. It's sitting waiting for the governor's signature to say that in the hiring process, employers shouldn't ask about criminal history at the initial stage in the process. The idea of A person, you know, a person might not even bother to apply for a job today if on the application form there's a box that says check here if you've got a criminal, you know, criminal history or criminal background. And the idea being that's, that's pre screening a wide range of people out who might otherwise be perfectly good fits for the job. So what does it say? Not ban the box, but move the box. You can ask that question later in the process, not at the outset. Okay.
0: Sounds good. But Natasha, what are the issues here for counties?
2: Again, there are a number of uh, sensitive employment issues where we have people that whether it's for security systems and they're going inside the houses and doing inspections or um, their law enforcement sensitive areas where you'd want to know,
1: um, uh, sooner than right. later. Right. So, so the way the state legislation passed here, they didn't include the state and local governments among the employers affected by the bill. So, so the bill that may go into law would affect private employers. And we were already seeing a number of counties enact this locally, but they sort of tailor it around those special classes of employees. So, you know, you may have a rule like this that says, we don't ask this for our employment. But what we do instead is we do it, you know, we do it at this phase. And for this class of employees, we actually have it as a screening question. Here's how it works there. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you want to be a new you're going to go through police training to get onto the police department. We're going to find that out early because we, we've decided that's a disqualifying issue for that particular job. But down here, we got 18 other jobs where you go through a more conventional process. And, you know, we may ask that later, but not at the start.
0: Right. And and we also see bills that just administratively would be almost impossible for counties to to comply with. And one of those bills, I think, is trying to remove wage history in in the hiring process. Right. And it's just administratively, it would be extremely difficult for counties to try and do this.
1: Yeah. Last couple of years, uh, the, the Maryland General Assembly has taken up bills that that would say employers shouldn't shouldn't ask your wage history when deciding whether to offer you a particular job or a particular wage and i and i think the i mean the goal behind this if you if you've been in the room for the bill hearings the goal behind the bill is to try and break a cycle of disparate pay for comparable jobs essentially between men and women right and the the argument is if if women have been getting paid 80 cents on the dollar or 70 cents on the dollar for comparable work if you continue saying well if you're making 46,000 now this I will offer you 50 that's how a lot of employment exchanges go but if she's making 46 and the guy in the comparable job's making 57 then he gets an offer at 60 she gets an offer at 50 and you never you never get out of that cycle even though they were they were doing comparable work
0: Right. So the idea is just nip this in the bud.
1: Right. So, so get that question out of the hiring process and basically tell us the kind of work you've been doing. You know, ask about the kind of work the employee has been doing, what their responsibilities were, you know, what their successes were, and then make an offer based on that. Don't say, well, what are you making now? I'm going to beat it by Mm -hmm. X. Um, so that's, that's the theory, uh, Nuts and bolts though, it gets tricky for counties because we're, I mean, first of all, we're much more public and transparent about hiring than most private sector employers. That's a function of being in the public. So we post something and here's, it's, this is a grade and here's the step and here's the classification of the job and here's the exact range that we're going to be hiring for. And, and we just the conversation this morning with our, our hiring professionals, you know, they're basically saying, the essential qualification for being hired as civil engineer two in my County is I was successful as civil engineer one. (laughs) Right. So they're not
0: looking at wage history. Right. And and, if, if
1: if you can't ask her whether she's been the civil engineer one, which she has, you've basically taken away the fundamental, I mean, okay, you did the essential jobs and you, you're, you're applying for a promotion to the next level, but we can't ask you whether you've been in your current job. It's just, it's a quirky
0: (laughs) <laughs> right, and public sector, with the grade and the step system, I mean, orderly promotions, all of that weighs into this. But the idea right. that you couldn't look at whether or not someone was – you know, engineer one, engineer two, three, that that would certainly complicate things when someone's looking to get promoted or looking for a
1: new job. Right. So we haven't seen the legislature take this up and sort of work over the bill and turn it into something that's ready to pass. I don't know whether that'll happen. I, I think if they do, we would probably be at the table tr- trying to say, okay, let's make sure there's an orderly way to maybe achieve these social goals mm-hmm. And and have the transparent process that public entities use without turning us on our heads, right?
0: Right, absolutely. And then of course we have workers' comp. That's another issue. Public safety is an outlier there, so we're engaged in those issues. But that's a whole longer right, discussion. That might be its own podcast.
1: <laughs> right. But I mean, workers' comp issues are interesting, and we do have classes of employers that are that are right. uh, frequently injured and tough to cover and so forth, especially people in public safety. So that is its own challenge, but. Yeah, we definitely have a whole stripe of workers' comp issues that are just us, not Black and & Decker and so forth. Um, and that, yeah, that'd probably be its own uh, back end of a podcast one day.
0: Sounds like a future podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll leave all of that there. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll get into the census and including some complicated issues that are going to make the 2020 census very interesting. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Natasha Mayhew and Michael Sanderson. And we are going to talk about the census. I promise you, the census is not boring. It is incredibly important. You're promising. You're promising, yeah. I promising, promise. I okay. promise. <laughs> all right, all right. So just a little bit of history. A decennial census is required every ten years. That's pursuant to the US Constitution and Federal Statute. The next census is going to occur in twenty twenty. April 1st of the year of the census under federal law is known as the decennial census date. No joke. No joke. And (laughs) the U.S. census indicates local governments and nonprofits groups can certainly help with marketing and other efforts to promote the census and encourage residents to respond. I guess that's what we're doing here on today's podcast. But, Natasha and Michael, why is the census so important and why do we care so much about the census?
2: The census Data is used for so much. I mean, everything from apportionment of seats uh, for uh, your U.S. House of Representatives to uh, redrawing of district boundaries. Um, it's used by the federal government to allocate billions of dollars in federal funding um, for education, health, transportation, housing, community services, job training. I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, local, state. Uh, governments and businesses and nonprofits also rely on that data to um, allocate funding or measure the impacts their programs are having um, and to make strategic decisions around economic development. Um, for instance, businesses will use information um, that the census collects, which is largely demographic information, mm-hmm. to see where they want to locate their new facilities um, and services, um, which means that's where the, uh, new jobs and economic growth will be created.
1: Yeah. So, I mean definitely a big deal if you're a data accuracy person, but you don't have to be in the weeds as a nerd to come away saying, well, geez, I mean, if the federal government uses data from the census to basically divvy up all sorts of things that go back to communities, go back to families, go back to farmers and citizens and so forth, that even if it's just about the money, there's an awful lot of money attached to this. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So um it's approximately... billion of federal funding that's allocated based on census data um, that amounts to almost $2,000 a person annually in Maryland if you misaccount on a person. And in the bigger scheme, when you're really looking at um, how the money is allocated and what builds upon it, it's $18,250 per person. That adds
0: up quick right that's
1: so, quick. Yeah, so, there's, so there's all sorts of things I mean some of them are family specific but other you know some of the the big ticket um, federal programs like community development block grants mm-hmm. I mean that's not, it's not family by family mm-hmm. that's a distribution to a whole neighborhood and if 2% or 4% or 12% of your neighborhood ends up not being counted in the census you go a decade getting underrepresented in those distributions and you know then you end end up losing out the things that are supposed to help that neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. right. No one wants an undercount. <laughs> right. I mean, and I
0: think so often people think about the census as, oh, we're going to use it to, to redraw congressional lines. And this is going to how we're going to, you know, have our, our house seats based on the census. But there is so much money at stake here. And we know that undercounted population is going to lead to significant declines in federal funding. What are some of the hurdles, Michael and Natasha, that, that the census has? And how can Maryland help to prepare? What is Maryland doing?
2: Yeah, so the census is, um, largely a self-report. They send out the information. They have people that go out and, and, um, try to connect with people. Um, but because of its nature, you do have populations that are, um, hard to count. Um, those include, um, immigrant populations, but also millennials. There's a lot of kids in schools, um, in colleges. Um, you have your older adults, um, and, uh,
0: Maybe mentally disabled folks.
2: Exactly. Exactly. People with mental illnesses as well. And those could be hard to reach populations.
0: Right. So, so we know it's, it's hard to get people to respond. It's hard to find people sometimes. Um, and we also know that Congress has not increased funding from the 2010 census and that the census will be fati- facing a tighter labor market for 2020. Than they had during the Great Recession in 2010, and that's important, right? Because a
1: lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of of temporary jobs. Which you know, and honestly, when you look at employment data, there's always sort of an asterisk. Every 10 years, for this little window of time, the number of people that the Census actually hires to go out, I mean, these you know, clipboard carriers. Mm -hmm. We think of them as like going door to door to addresses that didn't return the original form. I mean, that is. That's feet on the ground. We don't have any. We don't have any drones to do this kind of stuff. Not yet. <laughs> you need you need human beings to actually go knock on doors. Uh, so every ten years, the labor data has to be adjusted because of the census. Because we over we suddenly it's like, hey, what's the economic boom in in April of two thousand and ten? It's the census. We're talking hey, about you know,
0: five hundred thousand temporary part time employees. Yes, it's a lot of people. <laughs> And so we've talked about some of the hurdles here, Natasha, counting people, finding people. What is Maryland doing to prepare here? I know a lot of states are working on different initiatives to make sure their folks are counted. What is Maryland doing?
2: Yeah, so um, with the 2020 census nearing, uh, Maryland um, has established a 2020 Maryland Complete Count Committee um, to help the state prepare and mobilize for the census. Um, and so this um, committee includes nonprofit leaders, elected officials, state agency heads, um, county, and municipal representatives. Um, MAKO, we have a seat at the table. Uh, We're represented by Savitra Peoples um, from Baltimore County. Um, And so this complete count committee really serves as a census ambassador, um, and they'll play an integral part in ensuring a complete and accurate count of all the communities in Maryland. So they
0: sort of act as a liaison between the community and the census?
2: Right, because we want to ensure there's coordination between all the counties, all the local governments, but also the nonprofit groups that are trying to help um, and the state.
1: Yeah. And it's a lot of community information too. I mean, right now, every responsible county is looking for all the places where you have contact with citizens Mm -hmm. to let people know the census is going to be coming. It's going to show up in your mail. Here's what it is. Don't throw it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't, you know, fill it out, send it back. But also like there's the, there's the citizen education process. Like you want residents to know this is what the census is used for and this is what it's not used for. So people
2: get wary when government's asking questions. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like
1: send this to the government and then suddenly there's a fraction and it's not a tiny fraction but a fraction of people say, no, no. I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> stay, uh, stay off my back. I didn't register to vote because I don't want to be called for jury duty. Right. I don't want to do this. Right? <laughs> I mean, I mean so that's part of what you, I mean, yeah. in, in addition to language difficulties and and you know people who just don't understand the process or getting something mailed to the wrong address. Those things are nuts and bolts problems. But there is just an impression problem with some people saying, I don't like the government. And so you do your best. Like, hey, some of those people go to the library, put up a sign at the library, Mm -hmm. say this is what this is and this is what it isn't. And this
0: is why it's important to your community. Right. Right. And because we know that the census data is so vital to ensuring federal support for counties, we did in 2018 last year support legislation to establish the 2020 census grant program. Natasha, talk about that and how that's helping here to make sure that Maryland residents are counted in the census.
2: Yeah, so that grant program. Um, um allowed local governments and nonprofit organizations to apply for matching funds to help with their 2020 census efforts. Um, and so the grant panel uh, awarded over $4 million in funds to local government organizations and um, nonprofit organizations. Uh, about uh, uh, 10 counties were awarded funds.
1: So it's it's a pretty broad effort and and this is this is not any particular character or jurisdictions it's big and small mm-hmm. uh, who are who are pursuing this and I think the efforts we're seeing at the county level are all over the map too. There are some rural jurisdictions who feel like it's reaching through the farming community and reaching through places like farmers markets and the county fairs and stuff like that is a way to reach a broad audience. The strategy in some place like Baltimore County, I mean, big, expansive, really, you know, Richly diverse county that's got a little bit of everything. Um, you know, Baltimore County's got everything from, from built up metropolitan areas to big sprawling rural parts. And they've got all of the above. Uh, a place like Baltimore city has a different challenge, uh, than Garrett County for sure, but they've got neighborhoods that they're trying to reach. And that's going to involve languages and education and reaching out through churches and so forth. So you do everything you can.
0: Right. So this, this grant panel, this four million dollars was certainly important. And, you know, everybody from Washington County to Baltimore City, uh, got some grant money here out of those counties. But we do know that there are going to be some issues outstanding as we approach the 2020 census, Natasha. And this all has to do with the Supreme Court. And essentially, Maryland is involved here because Maryland is one of the states who has challenged Uh, this idea that the government should put a question on the census that asks whether or not a person is a citizen of the United States. We know the Supreme Court just heard oral arguments on whether the administration can add this question. Natasha and Michael, this has been challenged in three courts, New York, California, and Maryland. And let's talk about what the critics are saying and what the administration is saying in response to the critics.
2: Yeah. So critics to so adding the question onto the census mm-hmm. are saying that it would harm the credibility and reliable, reliability of the census, Um, essentially because of would- a cause large numbers of people um, particularly immigrants um, to not respond or respond incorrectly um, and then again as we discussed there's a lot of repercussions to undercounting um, in the census and so you could lose funding and political representation um, and that would hurt um, across the board um, whether you're a um, blue state like california or a red state like texas
0: and, and and I know this is a politically charged issue, as we heard in some of the oral arguments, I think, yesterday. But – so so the administration is essentially saying, look, we have the right to put this on here. We need to know – this is not about – we're not trying to find people and throw them out of the country. We need to know where they are. We need to know where these communities are so that we can redirect funds. Right. And
1: there's – I mean there's there are logistical arguments behind having cleaner and more expansive data come from the census. So – In in a more perfect world, having a census that everybody responds to and you get a complete and accurate count of people, but you also come away with more detail in the demographics of who the people are and how they're classified and so forth. I mean think think of the Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. and enforcing – Voting rights is largely about classes of people being disenfranchised by either district drawing or election practices or things of that nature, right? So it would be essential to know in the city of Charlotte or in the city of Baltimore or in the city of Lubbock, what's the – I mean, if there's something going on with election law or election administration in certain places, you look to the census to say, is this an area that looks like it might be subject to – targeted action that would violate the, the, the Voting Rights Act. So having useful information about who's where and what classes they fall into, I mean, it's one of the practical uses of having that information. So when the Department of Commerce, who oversees the census, you know suggest this idea um they're saying we'll go back to a question that was in in some form on the census decades ago asking this information could give you more complete information about the people who respond the question is does that actually depress the response and give you an inaccurate or even a skewed set of results right
2: Right. And then, so then again, the critics would say you're not going to get the, the, uh, proper results if less people are responding. And then also that the census and other government agencies do collect a lot of information. And so, um, uh, census releases other surveys um, through, that are done more frequently. And those surveys snapshot a smaller portion of the population um, but ask citizens questions there. So right. their critics' argument is that there's not a lack of data. You could get it from different sources.
0: And, right. and I guess another another point is that the Constitution says that the census needs to count every person living in the United States, not just citizens. So if the goal is to have a complete and accurate count – um i guess the critics would say look this question is going to dissuade people from turning their forms in because whether you like it or not they're afraid that they're not a citizen that you will come and get them and throw them out of the country
1: right and i mean it's it's an it's an understandable apprehension right if you're if you're a resident but you're not a citizen even if you're here you know with a visa or with a green card but you're not a citizen the idea of sending a form to the government that says Here's who I am. Here's where I am, and I'm going to remind you that I'm not a U.S. citizen. That certainly would it would give me some pause sure. if I were in that circumstance of <laughs> filling out that form. I mean, I'm not getting twenty bucks for filling out the form, right? right. We're not at that point, so right. <laughs> um, it just you can you can see the logistical argument that this would end up depressing participation, and particularly for sensitive populations, which in part the census is supposed to be the one thing we do that gets around that.
2: Right. So so what it leads to is another question that the court then is looking at, and, and that becomes the procedure, the legality of making these changes. Right. Um, and there are steps that the um, census officials have to go through when they're making changes on these surveys. The surveys are scientific, so you need to make sure you're asking a question uh, in an appropriate way, that, um, that there's a very public process to how changes are made, and um, it goes through the appropriate channels. And so some of the arguments there as to whether or not, um, uh, in making this change and asking for this, uh, question to be added to the census, they went through all those required channels
1: first. Right. And, it, and, and the question of what is, what is just customary as opposed to what is required. In process is a big part of what the oral arguments ended up being about this week, which is interesting. I mean, yeah, Natasha, you're the only lawyer among the three of us, but I, I, I the coverage of the oral arguments was interesting to me that you get into a structure of government question where an executive branch agency – generally has an awful lot of latitude in how Mm -hmm. to conduct the affairs of their agency. Um, And so you end up with stakeholders saying, but usually the census does A, B, and C before they change the form. And here they didn't go through those steps. And the department is more or less saying, we we have a process, but we are not obligated under law to follow that process all the time. So I, I don't I don't know how this goes, but there's questions beyond the census that are that the Supreme Court is being asked to resolve, and uh, the timing's an issue too, <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> and essentially, how many people are we talking about here? The the critics of of adding this question, how many people do that they think this would affect? adversely if you put this question on the census form. I know it's in the millions.
2: Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it could result in an undercount of an estimated 6.5 million people.
0: Okay. And so we've talked about what the Supreme Court has heard. What happens if they throw this question out? Is there no other way that we can collect this data?
2: Um, again, the census collects um, a lot of information. They perform uh, more frequent surveys aside from this ten-year census, and so um, citizenship is something that they ask on one of their smaller, more frequent um, surveys, the American Community Survey.
1: Right. So, so you end up getting sort of aggregate and as and and uh, sort of. Overall data from the American Community Survey and that looks at demographic issues and so forth. But for, for some reason, it's just not the same as the counting heads process you do once every 10 years. You can, you can survey 1100 people in Texas and come away mm-hmm. with some sense of what percent do this and what percent are that and so forth. And all those things, so, well, they have a margin of error, a plus or minus this. Shots. Yeah. That, <laughs> but that, but that's, that's never the same thing as. On April 1st of the year 2020, the official population in Texas or Maryland or wherever was X. That's going to and be here's, your Google search result, right, right? So that's your that's the number, and you know these other things that give you regular, you know, some data. They they aren't the same thing as the count. And so do they satisfy every one of those data needs and, and so forth? That's part of the question here too. So, you know, the integrity of a complete count census is a big philosophical issue. I don't know whether those are the grounds that the Supreme Court are going to be, you know, that's what they're going to be evaluating this based on. There's, there's a lot of nuances to this.
0: And so Natasha you mentioned the American Community Survey that's sort of a snapshot and that is not used to determine legislative seats correct so that's just that's data that that snapshot data that sort of goes to the census but it's not part of this decennial census right correct okay and speaking of the citizenship question i know we mentioned earlier this has been asked in the past not exactly the same way when is the last time this question would have been asked uh, or at least something similar to this question would have been asked Natasha the 1950s okay so this, this does have precedent, though, that this, this has been asked before. But as Michael, I think, as you said, there are a lot of nuances here the Supreme Court's dealing with. It's not as simple as should this question be on or should not – should right. the question not be on the decennial right. census.
1: And TikTok, right? We're talking about the mm-hmm. 2020 census. April 1st is the official date for the census, right? So, yes. So that's uh, – by my count, that's less than a year from now. So, so
0: when do we expect uh, the Supreme Court to make this decision?
2: Well, so first, whether or not the question is added on, the census officials themselves have to send the questionnaire to print um, by, the, by the start of summer, by the end of June. Um, and that is because... We're looking at 2020, so we're less than a year away. And so the Supreme Court is also expected to make their decision by June, the end of their current term. So the
0: timing sort of works out there. Somebody at the Census Bureau, I'm sure, has like the, the, the census, it, the words <laughs> highlighted, and they're ready to hit delete, or they're ready to just send it to the press, <laughs> and, and yeah. we'll have to see. Yeah, right?
1: specimen A, specimen B, right? Right. that sort of right. thing, right? Yeah, guess what should do?
0: Okay, so obviously this is a very important topic, and I, I think we're going to talk about this more moving forward, Michael.
1: I think it'll be a big deal. It's something. It's something we'll probably focus on at our summer conference. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's good, relevant content for for county officials to understand what it means to them and what they ought to be doing on the ground over the next year. So that makes sense for us to be organizing on that front. But uh, I think it's a it's a good central issue for you know it affects everybody whether it's through money or the political process. It's all important.
0: Absolutely. Every 10 years, every 10 years. So we don't have to hear about this every year, but this is a decennial that's coming up in 2020. And obviously we talked about why it's so important. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us a like, tell your friends. It really helps us get our message out. But until next week, we will talk to you soon.